At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I can't get beyond the boundaries of Fantasia. <laughs> What's so funny about that? Fantasia has no boundaries. Foolish boy. Don't you know anything about Fantasia? It's the world of human fantasy. Every part, every creature of it, is a piece of the dreams and hopes of mankind. Therefore, it has no boundary. Dying then? Because people have begun to lose their hopes and forget their dreams, so the nothing grows stronger. What is the nothing? It's the emptiness that's left. It is like a despair destroying this world, and I have been trying to help it. But why? Because people who have no hopes are easy to control. And whoever has the control has the power. Welcome, everybody, to Aeon Bite. Welcome to the virtual Alexandria. And my name is Miguel Connor. I am still your Pompidus of Gnosis. And glad to, that glad that you have arrived here. You are amazing. You are the final authority, authority and you're going to do so many wonders. And today it is Wednesday. It just had to be Mercury Day for this show. And it makes perfect sense as we go through those doorways with the God of the Mind. Today, on this Mercury Day, it is always an honor and a pleasure to have Marlene Seven Brebner this time to discuss her, I would say, awesome sequel, maybe better than her first book. This could be the Godfather 2 of her books, but both books are amazing. But this book is The Hermetic Marriage of, Al of Art and Alchemy, Imagination, Creativity, and the Great Work. Seven, thank you very much for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me, Miguel. Pleasure is all mine. And yes, here is the book. I enjoyed it a lot. And yes, I have these. These books are excellent. The Blue and the Red. Books that will definitely change your mind. And by changing your mind, transmute your mind. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm fine today. Anxiously waiting what's new from the alchemistry lab. 
there is always something new or at least transformational and that's what we're gonna we're gonna get into and yes uh, good to see everybody already going into the chat room you guys know the rules please behave don't turn the chat room into a chatico full of witico and if you have any questions please super chat them so we can put them separately and then provide them to seven or if you have complaints against vance and me which is fine go ahead and do that too but please super chat them as always there will be an audio version in a day or two lots of shows coming out this september i am uh, pulling all the stops as they say uh the reason is because i love you guys i love the guests and what they're doing I love the gnosis they are bringing into this world, and I think it's making a difference and transforming people one pink beam at a time, if you would. So there's going to be a lot of shows coming in September, so brace yourself for the true hermetic and Gnostic dope. Uh, well, Seven, why don't you tell us about how this book came about? Was this something you had planned with your first book or what was the process of these uh, two books that came out pretty short after each other? They're both big and one after the other came out. Well, originally I thought they would be one book. And then when I presented it to Inner Traditions, they wanted me to break it into two books. And I think that was a really smart move. Um, It allowed me to go deeper into both um, subjects, you know, in the first book, deeper into hermeticism and the roots of that. And then in the second book to have some time to explore these different art movements that I um, talk about in the first four chapters. Um, So, yeah, then I was able to kind of in the first book present hermeticism as the foundation for alchemical um, wisdom and practice and then go deeper into the alchemical art in the second book. So this one is really much more oriented towards creativity and alchemy um, through that lens. Yeah, it certainly takes us uh, across history and more to our modern times, and it has more, I don't know if you want to say usable. Well, your first book was just this awesome summary and adventure of uh, late antiquity and the the great uh, laboratory that was the minds of the Hermeticists and throughout history. Yours is this one, uh, I love how you tackle all these uh, modern art movements and also talk about your process and what you do. So, yeah, highly recommend, guys, you get both books and you check them out. Um, So uh, to start with, uh, and of course, you deal with this a lot in your book, and that's the term imagination. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people, it's one of those words we throw it around all the time, like... uh, the occult or pagan or and we assume everybody knows what the word is a polysemous word but what exactly is imagination in the context context of your work seven well i see imagination as a divine faculty that we have something that can be developed and refined to use in a very powerful way and so we experience it in many different ways the imagination as a sort of fanciful thing where we go off into a daydream and, you know, just free associate and that can be really magical. Um, but then there's also the imagination as it comes into play in the creative process um, as we're reaching into the unknown and sort of um, drawing forth energy and ideas that are coagulating into new art forms and 
music and poetry and everything that we're creating in our lives. And then there's also the imagination in the uh, transmutation of our reality. So the term manifesting would apply here. So the way that we consciously use imagination to affect changes in the outer reality. And in a sense, that's what magicians are doing as well when they engage with the astral realms. Uh, it's a work of imagination. And so it comes into play in all these different hermetic ways, whether we're practicing magic or working alchemically or um, working astrologically. And all of these things overlap and interblend. But the imagination is present throughout all of that. Yeah, here's the quote that I have from your book. Uh, Coming to be is nothing but imagination. So it's almost like there's a, uh, here's another quote. It's not from your book, but it reminds me uh, a lot about it. Where is it from Tobias Churton from his book on Crowley? Uh, Gnosis is the religion of the artist and the artist is simply man doing what man does best. Being a joyful co-creator manifesting light in the dark universe. And when I mentioned this to Tobias, he couldn't remember it. It really came from somewhere else. He's like, I said that he like patted his own shoulder. He had no, he couldn't remember that quote. So is that more or less what we're talking about? Seven? Exactly. Yeah. Imagination brings us into uh, resonance with that creative force of the universe so that we become co-creators with it. Uh, and that's a beautiful quote by Tobias there. Thanks for sharing that. And it's, you do, excuse me. You deal with this in your book, uh, uh, like when we talk about Henry Corbin and his idea that there is an imagination, imaginal, the imaginal world, world, and what we're simply doing is quieting ourselves, contemplating. You know the 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 hermetic exercises when the uh, the hero of Bantle will just say stop, just listen. We've done all the where you just quieten yourself and you're able to travel into this world and you're not maybe not creating, but discovering. Is that how it is too? Yeah, there's that aspect as well, the discovery and just opening up into the imaginal world as Corbin called it. Um, and the reason that Corbin created that term, um, the mundus imaginalis, the imaginal world, was to differentiate from the word imaginary or imagination because there's so many connotations that we have in our current paradigm with that word as it, you know, it, being unreal, or it's just your imagination, you're just imagining things, we have very kind of negative spin on it, you know, and as important as it is in innovation and creativity, um, it has kind of a bad rap. So giving it a different terminology helps us to put it into a different framework and see, see it as something in its own right, the imaginal world. So I really like that term. Yeah, again, uh, we must co-create with the universe. Uh, your book also, again, it's not just, it's an exploration of these ideas and these individuals who did the work, uh, whether they were occultists or artists and so forth. But you do uh, give a lot of exercises that you offer. And I like this part where you quote Mary Louise von Franz, who was basically Jung's second or, you know, successor, if you would. But you talk about using active imagination, and she writes that there are four stages. Emptying the mind from ego-driven thoughts. Yeah, those monkey thoughts, that's always fun. Mm -hmm. Inviting the unconscious to enter. Expression of the fantasy. 
and the ethical confrontation with the fantasy image and integrating the experience. And uh, that seems like a good way to get your imaginal juices going. And you even talk about how you um, you had sort of a, did an active imagination exercise. And you write, I encountered a mature woman wearing a blue veil who looked to me to a snowy mountain peak. She was helping me to remember the strength of my solitude. So... Mm-hmm. I know it's a lot. Can you help unpack this about using the active imagination and how it's helped you? Yeah. So I'll often use active imagination to continue a conversation with a dream figure. So if there's a dream that maybe leaves off uh, without a real conclusion or with some sort of question as to what a dream figure was trying to communicate, then I can go into active imagination and call upon that figure and create begin a dialogue with them and allow them to speak for themselves and ask them questions. And the way that I like to do it is to have a pen and paper at the ready and to kind of clear the mind, get rid of those distracting thoughts of the ego, go into a centered, quiet space, make that invitation, begin to visualize and allow that form to arise from the dream. So I've already got an image in this instance, you know, of the dream figure and then just begin to ask questions. And after each question, go into a quiet space of reception, allow them to respond, wait for that, and then write it down. And then write down my question, my next question, and just go through the whole conversation like that. And I'll often go back and forth between closing my eyes to communicate with them and then writing down what transpires. And that way I'm getting the whole dialogue that I can reflect back on and read again. And also closing my eyes, going into that receptive space. And it's really amazing how much information you can get from this process and how much you can learn. And then it also is a way of engaging with the unconscious side of ourselves in a very intentional and conscious way. So when we're talking about in alchemy, this is a big theme, the marriage of the opposites. Um, Looking at that psychologically, that's that marriage between the conscious and unconscious, what's above and what's below. And I don't see it as just psychological or just energetic or just physical. I see it as a blend of all of those things. And the more ways that we can kind of describe it and talk about it, the more we can get a grasp of what's actually going on. So, All right. Keep that communication. All you, excuse me again, all Jung was trying to do was create a new language about things that were already there that we could grasp at our fingertips. Yeah, this reminds me last night, Seven, I had a dream. I was at this park and I lay down at the bottom of the slide, the slide that goes around and I'm laying there just looking at my phone. And suddenly of all people, Denzel Washington's is leaning over me. And he's like, you know, with a voice, you comfortable, you know, kind of <laughs> that authority, you comfortable, you like that. And I was like, yes, Denzel, I'm fine. And I looked up and his daughter's at the top and I was being a complete jackass by blocking the slide. So oh, I got up and I was like, so, and I, I felt terrible for the girl. I, I didn't want Denzel Washington to kick my ass. It would have been an honor, yeah. I guess. But uh, this morning I took the dogs to that park. We took a long walk. I went in front of that slide and I was just sitting there meditating on the slide. And the dogs are looking at me like, ah, oh, he's finally, human finally lost it. So, but I know what you're saying. So I'm sort of having a dialogue with Denzel yeah. Washington or whatever he symbolizes. I don't know yet what he symbolizes yet. 
father That's, archetype. I don't know. Yeah, father archetype, authority, maybe uh, power, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and Very was he block? Yeah, yeah. Was I blocking the slide? Am I blocking the child archetype? I mean, there's a lot, yeah. like you said, there's a whole conversation, and uh, yeah. sometimes people want a certain insight, but I've learned that's not the important. The important thing is, as Jung said, to experience the emotions, to experience the flow that comes from uh, comes from the revelation, right? To make things more mm -hmm. open. Yeah, and also just to engage with it, you know, mm -hmm. to acknowledge it as being meaningful and real in its own right and to engage with it, to have that dialogue unfolding, not just in the dream, but throughout your waking life as well, which I love that you went to that park and kind of took a moment with that slide. I think that's a really beautiful way uh, to, you know, integrate a dream is bring it into the real world somehow and not necessarily act out a dream, especially if there's, you know, um, strange and bizarre things that maybe would be inappropriate but uh in we can act out a dream in ways that are not harmful to other people you know right right instead of uh yeah really get you, getting your butt kicked and i think that's what <laughs> the beauty of these dreams and symbols there's another quote i wanted to share with you which is one of my favorite quotes and let me know your thoughts but uh i wish this individual had a different name it's a german professor but uh, uh it, let's see let me get that hold on i don't like the ticker save here's a quote the pyramid doesn't stand for something it makes something visible yeah yeah jan asked man the mind of egypt which is a really good book but it kind of gave me a huge revelation because i realized I, i'm over there trying to decipher the symbol of the phoenix or red or what do the pyramids stand for and then i realized no these symbols and stuff mm -hmm. open up channels they open something it's like they will show you something you're looking over here but they're going to show you something over there isn't that what the process is too or yeah if i understand process? what you're saying it's like a these dream figures or symbols they allow us to see something that's hidden or invisible in that or sort new. of um, eternal world. And it gives us something to hold on to, you know, and they can have many different meanings, not just one thing, but yet there's something within that symbol that ties them all together. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or opens up something completely new in your life that uh, mm -hmm. again, trying to decipher the mysteries of the pyramids or what the color red means in my life instead of, there's something it's pointing at. So, uh, yeah. So I always thought it was an interesting quote that's helped me a lot. And the idea of experiencing the symbols and the archetypal images instead mm -hmm. of trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a balance. You know, there's a, a certain amount of investigation and wanting to understand, trying to figure it out. And then also just a grace and letting go and allowing things to be revealed in their own way and in their own time. Exactly. So let's talk about maybe the thesis of your book. Uh, yes, you talk in your book, basically, you're talking about how we can use the great work, the alchemical process to help our, our art, I'm sure. But I'm sure some people are thinking like that offspring song, gotta keep it separated. But <laughs> you can use the alchemical uh, the opus to help your creative life. Could you explain more or less to the audience about this? 
Yeah, well, uh, the way I present it goes back to a, a very old way of looking at the stages of the alchemical opus, the great work, uh, which is in a series of four stages that relate to four color changes that originally um, corresponded to actual color changes that were occurring within the alchemical vessels um, in different matters, usually within metallic or mineral substances. And so that progression moves from black to white to yellow to red. And if we look at the creative process and a lot of spiritual processes that we go through in life, uh, they can be directly correlated to these four stages of the great work. Um, so beginning with blackness and this sort of darkening and relating to the planet Saturn and the earth element and kind of processes of putrefaction and things breaking down and also to the darkness of the prima materia, the first matter of all creation. So it makes sense that the creative process would begin there, right? And where a lot of creation myths begin as well, which is in a dark watery abyss where everything exists, but it's undifferentiated. It hasn't been brought to order yet. And so that's the task of the creative being, the artist and Truly, I see us all as creative beings just by the fact that we're human, even if we're not all creating visual or musical art or written art, we're all being creative in different ways. Uh, so this applies to everyone and also it applies to the creativity of the spiritual process and that unfolding. So beginning in the darkness, opening that prima materia, discovering what's there and then bringing order to these elements that have been existing in a state of con or chaos. And psychologically, we can understand this as going into the unconscious and kind of allowing these hidden veiled aspects of the self to make themselves known so that we can learn and grow from them and also receive inspiration. So that's the beginning of the process. And for a lot of us, that can be a really uncomfortable place to be, um, that darkness. And it can be a very contracted, fearful place. If we think about putrefaction, and processes of things breaking down and rotting and the kind of miasma that emerges from that. And um, in our mental state, that could be like really toxic thoughts and negativity and um, hopelessness or self-hatred, lots of like really heavy stagnant energy that wants to be transformed. And that process in our life could be catalyzed by a loss of some kind or a major change in our life that is disruptive, you know, a divorce or loss of a job, loss of a loved one. Um, so it can be catalyzed by outside forces and we're just thrust into it. And then we're in this darkness in a period of loss and grief, or we can go into it willingly as a form of initiation. And that's what we do when we go on like a vision quest or go into a psychedelic journey or something like that, or working with alchemy is the way I present it here. Um, so there's different ways that this can come across in our life. But when we understand it as the beginning of a process, rather than an endpoint, and when we can see it as part of this process, and not something that defines us, but something that we're experiencing, it allows it to transform a lot faster, if we can embrace it in that way, even though it's hard, and even though it's uncomfortable. And also to just approach it with curiosity, what's actually here, what wants to be discovered, what wants to be uh, transmuted within me. So that's the beginning of the process. 
And creatively, that's where ideas are birthed. That's where ideas are formed is from that darkness. And so I think oftentimes in the creative process, we'll come across a block in the process where we lose inspiration. We don't know the next step in our project. Um, We feel lost. We don't feel like we're connected with our creative process anymore with our art. And so our identity is kind of challenged by that. And that can be the negredo as well, this blackening process. And again, if we embrace that as part of the process as a necessary breakdown and rest period, just like in nature, the fields need to lie fallow for a time to regenerate in the soil. Uh, We need that in our creative process. So that's the beginning of it. That's the negredo, the blackening. And as that begins to shift, one moves into the next stage of the process, and that's the whitening or the albedo. And this is a stage of um, purification and a very lunar and watery process that allows us to take those difficult things that we encountered in the first stage and bring a greater awareness to them. And if we have negative core beliefs, negative um, ways of seeing the world or seeing ourselves. This is a time that these can kind of be purified and broken down further. And we connect with something greater than ourselves, Um, like a crystal of salt dissolving in the ocean and becoming one with that body of the water. This is a similar process where we become one with the um, anima mundi, the soul of the world. We dissolve into that. And it can be a really profoundly inspiring and rich part of the process where we're receiving a lot of information, a lot of inspiration, lots of ideas, um, but we may not be entirely grounded through that. So in the creative process, this would be kind of um, where we go a little off the rails, you know, in a good way, hopefully. Hopefully. For some people, you know, it can go a little too far in that direction and it's hard to find your way back to shore. So what I hope to convey in the book is, you know, having some sort of physical or creative practice is really helpful to ground into when you go into these sort of liminal spaces, the dream world and connecting with the unconscious. And so one of the things I talk about in the chapter on the albedo, the stage is the surrealist technique of automatism. And I relate that to the universal solvent of the alchemist. So automatism is a way of uh, putting the rational filter on hold and allowing the unconscious to just express itself purely as it wants to and all of its irrational ridiculousness uh, and letting that just flow free without trying to put our uh, rational linear frameworks onto it. So automatic writing, where we just write stream of consciousness and let it come out however it wants to, automatic drawing, automatic painting. These are ways that the artist allows that unconscious hidden part of themselves to come out and can create some really interesting um, artwork and a lot of stuff to reflect on and learn from. Go ahead. Yeah, and again, you give techniques. You just gave some. You talk about dream journaling. You explain it. You give other techniques again to get the the process going. And this 
idea of alchemy as art or Hermes being present, uh, it wasn't something that you are making up. Artists knew about this process all throughout history from mm -hmm. the romantics and on, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think over time, these ideas just become more clarified and refined, just like the alchemical process, you know? And the surrealists really had a, a good handle on what was needed is that union of the conscious and the unconscious, the above and the below, and how that can be facilitated through art. So they didn't just stop at that automatic process, but they would then apply their skill, their technical ability to refine whatever came out of the unconscious to create beautiful works of art. Yeah, there is a quote you had, it's at page 90, and I have it here. And again, it just jumped out at me, so I had to show it. So here it is. The clash of the opposites within the human experience and the suffering wrought by dualism is the driving impetus for the surrealists, who by their art seeks reconciliation. So that's it, right? There's the above, below, unconscious, unconscious. We are forever, as humans, as Hermes said, stuck between heaven and earth. Yeah. So we have this responsibility, but it is also very painful to reconcile that, right? It is, yeah. Yeah, and these two different opposing sides of us are often in conflict. You know, the the rational part of us wants to suppress the irrational because we don't want to be seen as crazy. We don't want to be we don't want to be cast out of society, you know, right. and rightly so. Um, and the irrational part of us doesn't really know how to communicate to the rational side. So, yeah, these parts of us are in conflict um, and that can create tension within the individual, especially when we begin to allow these two opposites within us to start communicating. Um, oftentimes it's a, a conflict that arises and a tension that needs to be resolved. And if we're just existing in one realm or the other, um, we don't really need to have that confrontation, right? But when we're looking to bring union to these sides of ourselves, then that conflict arises. And I think it's through the creative and alchemical process that we can bring them to a harmonious union where we can be conscious and rational and present in consensus reality. And at the same time, experiencing it in a very surreal dreamlike way where we're receiving a hidden deep wisdom from everything around us, from people we interact with, from nature, from our dreams, from within us. Uh, everything is communicating. Oh, that's really well said. Yeah, Jung would say, congratulations, you're individuated. <laughs> Hermes would say, congratulations, you're a human. That's what I wanted for you all along. Simple, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the Surrealists even said that this wasn't something to be created. It was something already existent and inherent in our reality, this union of the above and the below. Um, already exists and we're just kind of getting everything out of the way that allows us to experience that. So in your, in your view, what exactly would be the philosopher's stone for the artist, what we're talking about or something else? Well, I see it in a, a couple of different ways. I see the philosopher's stone as the beginning of the imaginative process. You know, it emerges from that prima materia 
um, it's birthed from it. And just like the prima materia, all of the four elements are contained within it. Mm-hmm. And yet it's, it's like a raw metal within the earth. It's unrefined, you know? And so it's our job to bring that to its perfection and refine it throughout our lifetime. So at the end of the work, the philosopher's stone then becomes a very powerful effect of the imagination through which we can transmute reality. And for the alchemists, they were always searching for the physical philosopher's stone that could transmute metals and working to create this stone. And just a little bit of it could be sprinkled upon, like as a red powder sprinkled upon lead or iron and then transmuted into silver or gold. Um, But for the artist, this is our ability to take a little bit of our refined awareness and through the imagination to uh, create changes in the world around us and in our experience of the world. And I think, I don't know a whole lot about this, but I know that quantum physics is kind of pointing to this idea that we are continuously creating our reality through our observation of it and our interaction with it. It's not something that's um, clearly defined, but it changes based on who's perceiving it. So if that's true, and I believe it is, uh, the Philosopher's Stone is then that ability to uh, plant seeds into the collective unconscious, if you will, the astral realm that then gestate and come to birth in some way. And the clearer our lens is for the projection of that imaginative faculty into the unknown, the more likely those things are going to come uh, to pass in a way that really reflects our, our true desire. And I think in a spiritual sense, the magnum opus really helps us to clear out the lower parts of ourselves that are very selfish and oriented towards self-satisfaction and also refining our desires so that they come more and more in alignment with Uh, the desires of the universe itself. And the clearer that alignment is, I think the clearer our ability to transmute reality is as well. Beautiful. Yes. I think that's the true manifesting. And as you're talking, not only is the language of uh, us up and down and all that, but I've realized how important the language of the animus and the anima is. And it is, um, it's, I'm so frustrated because I know it's going to be a lot of work <laughs> and I'm like, but we all have to do it too. Like one thing I realized seven is that men at 55, I realized that men and different men and women speak a completely different language. And it just hit me from above. And I talked to a friend and I talked to my wife and they're like, well, you just now figured it out. We are like so separate. And I realized just like you would realize you have to sort of bring your animus out and unit. I have to bring my anima, but to do that, I have to learn this new language. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And, and and it was all, I, I, they had like cheap tickets and I took my family, my children to see the Barbie movie. Mm-hmm. And I did, I had this realization and I'm sitting there and every time that uh, one of the, girls or the Barbies would give a long speech I was always looking and I would look at my nine-year-old son he's like but then I would look at my seven and nine and ten-year-old daughter and they were always like they got every single word and Mm -hmm. I couldn't get it and it just hit me oh my god we speak completely different languages Mm. 
Yeah. And I think um, on that note, the anima and the animus, I think we have, each of us have both of those within us, you know? And so whatever our dominant consciousness is oriented towards, you know, I'm definitely femme and is. And um, so my unconscious uh, tends to be more oriented towards the animus. Whereas for, um, a male identified person, it would be the anima, but I don't think it's a hard line. And I have anima figures that appear to me in dreams and they just play a slightly different role than the animus figures. So I think they're both there for all of us. And it's just a matter of where we kind of orient in our conscious dominant personality. Oh yeah, for sure. I agree with you. Yeah. Even in dreams, there's always a message from these, again, these two horizontal sides that want to be integrated because as you know, we talk about uh, becoming a human, but becoming a human, according to the alchemist, the Hermenes and the Gnostics is about androgyny where we're mm-hmm. just, we're all David Bowie or Elvis or Michael Jackson or something. You know what I mean? We're or, uh, Annie Lennox, if you want to use uh female uh singers but uh, we're all that's where the big work also happens and mm-hmm. it's very controversial today but i'm sorry but that's part of individuation but it is a lot of work and it is a lot of listening and uh it's very rewarding when you can get those energies together oh yeah yeah i mean part of the reason why i started going by seven a number of years ago was because it felt a little more it's kind of a neutral because it's a number you know but I always thought it sounded beautiful. And I also thought it had more of a masculine energy to it. And at the mm-hmm. time, my given name, Marlena, just felt so watery. And, you know, Mar relates to the word for the sea and um, Mary Magdalene. So it had this very feminine feeling to it. And when I started going by seven and changing that vibrational energy of what people were calling me, it changed everything. It really allowed this other part of me to come through. And I'm not saying that you have to do that in order to discover this part of yourself, but that's kind of one way that I was able to do that in my life um, and access a more masculine part of myself. And then I had to kind of come back around after a while and reintegrate the feminine part. And that's how it goes with alchemy. It's this continuous separation and conjunction, you know, separate, conjunct. And then finally, they are just wed together in the royal marriage. Mm. Beautifully said. What about you, Vance? Do you have a question or any super chats? Yeah, we got one super. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Chat, um, um, the Gospel of Rant Jams wants to know, um, how do you conceptualize Christ consciousness and or the body of Christ? Hmm. Well, there have been some uh, within the history of alchemy that have equated the philosopher's stone with Christ. And I see that as a valid parallel, the body of Christ and um, the miracles that um, Christ is able to accomplish in the physical world. And that sort of relates to the miraculous powers of the imagination and the refined philosopher's stone. And I think there's definitely parallels with uh, the awakening of Christ consciousness and moving through the stages of the magnum opus, just like, you know, with enlightenment or yeah, self-realization, individuation, all these things kind of parallel each other. This kind of connection between Hermes and Christ in some circles, isn't there? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That too. Yeah. yeah. So hermeticism is about Hermes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even Jung said what in the 19th century, he said, uh, the only religion that was offering an inner life was the Catholic Church. And he said, because of the communion, I mean, if you, we all can see that the communion, the body of Christ is just a, a Sunday alchemical experiment done all the time, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's all there, isn't it, Seven? It it's is. It's all there. It's all there. Yeah. And uh, moving to, uh, as we talk about, for those of you joining us, we got Marlena Seven-Bremner, her book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy. This is a um, bite, and uh, we're having an excellent discussion. Again, if you have any questions, please super chat them. I'm seeing some go good comments out there in the chat. Um, what um, Your book definitely focuses on sort of the surrealism the symbolist sim symbolism and the dadaist who i love why did you decide to talk about those groups or would somebody say what's hermetic about them uh well i've been introduced to the connections between these different art movements of the 19th and early 20th centuries through the works of some other folks i'm john graham at inner traditions and Nadia Chaucha. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, so I was very inspired to learn about that and began to see how these different movements, beginning with Romanticism in the early 1800s and moving up to Surrealism in the early 1900s, uh, sort of reflect these stages of the alchemical opus. And it's not direct. It's just kind of I was inspired by it and also really love these four art movements. And so 
uh, was able to make some correlations between those four stages of the opus and these movements. So romanticism really was birthed out of uh, the Enlightenment era mm -hmm. and sort of in reaction against it to reassert the subjective world of the imagination, the importance of the individual, their inner world of feelings and uh, dreams and all of that. So in reaction to these enlightenment values of rationality and scientific investigation and what's objective and verifiable. And in a way, we could see that shift with the enlightenment era as the beginning of the Negredo phase, sort of a death of the imagination is how I like to think of it. And the romantics are just sort of opening that up and saying, actually, there's something here that's really important and we're going to make art about it and make our point. And they did it very well. And then throughout the 1800s, this transitioned into um, symbolism, which was also sort of a reactive movement against realism and different things that were occurring in throughout the 1800s and more of a focus on, again, the inner worlds like romanticism, but a much deeper orientation to them, sort of the dark world of dreams and intoxication and fantasy. And they really went into this sort of decadent realm, engaging with that <laughs> unconscious side and a lot of amazing artwork came out of it. And that can be related to that second stage of the opus where you go into that sort of dreamy, watery, lunar realm. And a lot of their imagery was very dark and very lunar and had a lot of ennui and sort of uh, nocturnal elements to it. So I find that very interesting because that also correlates with that unconscious or inner feminine side. And from there, moving into the early 20th century, uh, I think with things that were going on socially and politically, people were starting to feel like art needed to say something more. Um, it needed to make some sort of statement, you know, and I think with Dada, this was a way of making a very big statement that um, art needed to be deconstructed and the relationship of the artist with their art needed to be reevaluated. And so it was a complete negation of art and a breakdown of everything that art had symbolized up until then. And a lot of their techniques relied on chance and irrationality and making poetry out of just pure sound, uh, making poems out of just cutting up newspaper articles and shuffling up the, the words. And a lot of it comes out as nonsensical, but this is what they were going for was accessing the irrational, uh, nonlinear state of mind. And surrealism was developed along with Dada, kind of birthed with it. And then it became its own thing where the surrealists really wanted to investigate what they were finding in that unconscious realm and bring it back to the surface. And again, like we were talking about, uh, find that place where those opposites are already united. And yeah, so loosely those can be related to those four stages of the opus. And also a lot of the artists in those periods were working with the occult. They were inspired by alchemy. They were uh, using alchemy, alchemy as metaphors and also um, living very alchemical lives, some of them. And a lot of them were practicing magic. So there's a lot of overlap between artists and these occult practices. 
And I find that really fascinating. And it provided a, a lot of rich examples to use throughout the chapters on the four stages of the opus. Mm. Yeah, well said. I love, yeah, Dada just fascinates me because it wasn't, it wasn't just their art, but it was a whole lifestyle. Like, they were, you know, mm -hmm. like things like uh, they would look at a map and throw a dart and say, we're going to hang out. We're going to hang out there all Sunday in this part of France. You know, it was just sort of a, yeah, go absurdist. Just go with the yeah. flow. Be in the moment. Like you said, just let the larger mind take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think with the war, a lot of people were very aware of these unconscious parts of society that were being expressed in really violent and unhealthy ways. And so with the work of Freud and awareness around these different parts of the psyche and these hidden parts that can be really destructive if they're not channeled in appropriate ways, um, these artists were really keen on that, especially the surrealists, that we needed to be able to engage with the unconscious and give it a healthy outlet so that it's not working against us and creating the drive for war and destruction and conflict. Yeah, beautifully said, because uh, I, the, there are those who would love to say that we don't have an unconscious, that we are just what we see. It's a mechanistic universe, uh, but that is one of the biggest lies because most of what we are is just amazing kingdom of thoughts and feelings and archetypes and symbols. And that's the promise of Hermes and the Gnostic Jesus and all those, uh, those ancients from Alexandria. And that's what was discovered. So we have to keep fighting for it. And again, movements like the Surrealists and Dada they were also reactions, like you said, the war, which was one of the most logical things in the world, right? Oh, we're going to follow our, we made a deal with this country and we have a pact with this country. We've got all these new weapons and mathematically it'll be over. And like, oh my God, 20 million people died. We destroyed Europe. And people are like, okay, we can't let this happen again. And of course it did happen, but mm -hmm. at least they tried, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, world War II might have been... As Jung said, it might have been more uh, higher forces like the god Wotan and and obviously the Bolsheviks were into the occult and mad. You know what I mean? But World War One seems to be all, like you said, your, Blake's Urizen, that logical, mechanistic thinking numbers and, you know, cause and effect. And it was just a disaster, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the more awareness we can bring and it. These days, we have a lot of awareness about psychology, you know, and mm -hmm. understanding these various layers of the psyche and how they affect us. And a lot of people are in therapy, but it still doesn't seem to penetrate to all levels of society, right? Like in the way politics work, um, it's still very easy for us to pit one group of people against another and the divide and conquer kind of strategy that we're obviously experiencing here in the States with the polarization between the left and the right. And it's, you know, on a collective scale, it's the projection of the shadow onto an opposite group of people and an inability to reconcile the differences or to reclaim that shadow and say, hey, these are also aspects of myself, you know, and how can I come to peace with them and integrate them in a way that they become an ally? How can we work together? You know, so I think 
we're a long way from reaching that place where we really apply these ideas on the collective scale. But the more <laughs> of us that are doing this individually, I think it, it gives me hope anyway. No, I agree with you because, I mean, the left and the right are illusions. They don't even exist, but people have fabricated these narratives. And yeah, just getting back into the world of mythology and art and the, the unconscious and all that. So, um, uh, well, we shall see again. That's why we do what we do. And that's why uh, I decided I have so much love for everybody who does this work and uh, puts it all out there and is really trying to uh, transform the world in an alchemical way. So it's either that or the, as, as Einstein said, uh, he doesn't know how World War Three will be fought, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones because there ain't going to be much <laughs> left. <laughs> what do you could think, Vance? See, or anybody? Yeah, yeah. Could we see uh, this polarization in the world as um, an alchemical process too, with the separation? Mm-hmm. Um, you know that, that, and so after the separation, there has to be a recombination. So maybe that's what's happening, like the way you charge a battery, right? When you you, you get all the electrons on one side and a no electrons on the other side and every they're all separated and all of a sudden you connect them both and then there's current and there's motion change you know that's what what happens well what's going to happen is the big question isn't it that is the big question but i think you're right i think we can view it as an alchemical process and the greater that separation the greater that union is going to be but right now we're just kind of in that in the thicket of that separation you know really experiencing um that dichotomy and inability to communicate between two sides of our society and my hope is that we will find a way to unite them again and that this is really just a stage in the process and with the breakdown of social structures and um political structures and these systems that have been working or not really working, but that have been in place for a long time are no longer working and they need to be broken down before we can form something new. And that process of breaking down putrefactio is a very uncomfortable process. And we're all experiencing that collectively, um, not just with the political sphere and the social sphere, but with the environment as well and the heating up of the temperatures and this very kind of fiery calcination that we're all undergoing. I think, I think it's really an initiation for our species and we'll either pass the test or we won't, but we'll see. Yeah. I like what Harold Bloom said about the Gnostics. He said that the central dictum of the Gnostics, what, what can be broken must be broken. He wasn't talking about go out there with bats smashing, but you know what I mean? Ideas have to be torn down and then put back together. It's just the way, yeah. at least challenged, viciously challenged. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's what we are doing here, but um, I want to get to the last super chats and show some of your vis- visual seven, if you don't mind. But if you sure. could indulge me, I was reading your book. And there is always, I don't know if you had this experience, you're reading and you read a story and you keep reading. And then that story is nagging you. You read about a character, a hundred, and you're like, this is really nagging me. This is really, I have to go back. And this one, I had to go back and reread many times because I found this figure fascinating and interesting. And that is Leonora Carrington, the surrealist. 
her story is wild and it just keeps going in my head. Did you have the same? Oh, yeah. Effect? Could you tell the audience about this overlooked and amazing individual? Well, yeah, she um, she and Max Ernst were lovers. Max, everybody knows him. Yeah. but Yeah. And she was introduced into the surrealist circles by Ernst. And then during the war, Ernst got interned in and then they were separated and I think she had to flee to Spain and it was this whole dramatic process and the separation of the lovers, you know, and um, kind of catalyzed this breakdown for her emotional, mental breakdown. And she went further and further into it, but she began to feel like um, very identified with the external world as though the external world and what was happening in Spain and in the war and everything around her was actually happening within her. And I think she describes it as like her digestive process was the um, soul of Madrid or something like that. I can't remember exactly how she put it, but it was this very like intimate identification with the external world. And I think that when we're talking about connecting with the unconscious, when it goes a little too far into like, you know, uh, mental health issues, that identification between the subject and the object becomes so blurry uh, that we lose sense of ourselves and we become really part of what's outside of us and what's outside of us becomes part of us. And so she really went into this, but she was able to pull herself out eventually and write about the whole process. And there's a lot of alchemical, a lot of hermetic imagery from her experience where she really felt like she was one with the all and the one or the all was part of her, you know, and this, connection between the above and the below. And even though she was in um, um, an asylum, you know, because of the extreme nature of what she was going through, uh, she was able to kind of consciously perceive these things unfolding. And luckily for us, she wrote it all down. And so we can follow her on that journey. But it's really amazing. And I don't feel like I'm doing it justice. But uh, she wrote a great short story about it called Down Below which you can find online. And I highly recommend reading that. Yeah. Well, like when Jung had his, he on purpose had a mental breakdown so he could visit his soul and meet, uh, you know, uh, Simon Magus and so forth. Uh, so it's kind of similar where you're able to record you, like you said, the breaking down of the two worlds and going into the irrational and her ideas were just amazing. How you described like she, she she made herself stop menstruating for three months and called it the rubedo or the alchemical. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything was a ritual, this cosmic ritual for her. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty wild. I loved it. Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't want to go through it. <laughs> I've had probably as close as a person could have to that experience without going completely off, you know, to where I would need to be um, in a in an asylum of some sort. But yeah, I think for the artist, it's necessary to kind of go into those irrational realms. But yeah, being able to pull ourselves out of it and keep one foot on dry land is really important. Yeah, I don't even know what you call them today. Asylum? Are we being politically incorrect? I don't even no, know. No, I what... just can't find the word right now. I'm having a little brain fog. Yeah. But... Institution, yeah. how's that? Institution, hey, yeah. good one, good one. Yeah, yeah. We had some bad words for them 10 years ago. But uh not house. Uh, <laughs> Looted. Yeah, 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 yeah. everything else. Hey, I've been on I've been in rehab, inpatient rehab. So 
we still just called it rehab, I guess. Um, so awesome. Uh, any, uh, before I get into some of the visuals to treat the audience, uh, super chats from the audience fans. Yeah, we do. Uh, gospel of rant, uh, jams, uh, made another super chat and they know. want to know Marlene, have you had a moksha or samadhi or enlightenment experience? And if so, if you have, could you describe it? Hmm. Well, I wouldn't use those terms because that's not the tradition I'm kind of oriented towards, but I would say that I've had several very intense experiences of what I consider enlightenment. Um, not to say that I'm enlightened or anything, but the way I would explain that is just an intense feeling of oneness and connection with all that is. And the dissolution of the personal ego and the sort of surrender to something greater. And I've experienced that a few times in my life. Um, there was once when I was at a Vipassana retreat where I had a similar experience. And um, I think following my own sort of journey through the first stage of the opus, the Negredo, when I started to come out of that, I also had a very sort of initial spiritual experience that allowed me to feel that sense of connection with all things and that everything that I was perceiving outside of me was simultaneously within me. And I've been able to retain that since then, but at the time it was such a profound experience to recognize uh, the outer world within myself and vice versa. And to also in that sense, understand the power that we have as individuals to affect the outer world through the imagination. So that was sort of, a, I wouldn't say it happened all at once. It was a kind of cumulative experience over maybe a few months. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. We also had uh, Francis of Sophia Klatt wanting to know um, if uh, the Carmelite ascent to Mount Carmel relates to the inner alchemical experience that you're describing today. Well, I don't know enough about that to speak intelligently on it. So, I mean, the ascent of the mountain is a very alchemical, you know, initiatory sort of theme experience. And there's a lot of alchemical art that revolves around um, the philosopher ascending a mountain. So I imagine that it does have parallels, but yeah, I just don't really know enough about it. Okay. Uh, finally, um, Christina Maria um, uh, expresses her uh, delight at the show and wants to know what order you recommend that we read your books. Well, I would recommend reading them in order um, with the hermetic uh, philosophy. Yeah. The one that Miguel is holding on the left. Sorry. This one. Yeah, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, reading that one first, because it lays the foundation for Hermeticism. It gives a really thorough overview of alchemical theory and then very thorough chapters on each of the seven planets, which is, mm -hmm. I think, fundamental to working with alchemy. And then, yeah, the second book follows on that and builds on that. And even though they have different orientations around Hermeticism and then art, they go together very well, I think. 
Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for the super chat. Thank you, Christine yes. and everybody else. Good yeah, stuff. Thank you. Well, let's show a little of the visuals because we always want to treat the audience if possible. Let's see. You sent some visuals just like you did last time. And there they are. There you go. All right. So you consider yourself a surrealist, right? If somebody had to pigeonhole you? Well, Actually, I consider myself more of a surreal idealist because I use surrealist techniques for some paintings. And then for others, it's sort of a combination of surrealism and idealism where I'm actually really trying to convey an ideal concept in a harmonious way. And for me, that's a form of integration. So when I paint in a sort of symmetrical way or in mandala forms like this one, this is more of a process of integration for me. And while it has aspects of surrealism, um, there's a lot of planning that goes into it in a sort of linear way. So part of the process does rely on surrealist techniques of accessing the unconscious. So with this one, I actually had a dream and what I would call a big dream or what people have called big dreams in the past, where it just had this, I don't know, very intense emotional feeling to it. I knew it was important and it was a long dream, but the part that really stood out was that there was a toxic swamp and there were these different crows that were pointing the way to where that toxicity was coming from. And I needed to find it. And when I got there, I saw a serpent transform into a lizard and then into an ancient crocodile, very mm. big crocodile. And the crocodile went into the canal of the swamp and went into this dark tunnel. And so that began this whole period of questioning for me of like, okay, what's in the dark tunnel? What is the crocodile? What about the, the mm -hmm. serpent? What about the lizard? Um, what about the crows? And from there, I began to what I consider like a, a long-term alchemical meditation on a dream where I'm just slowly unpacking the symbols, exploring them through reading about symbology, making connections, allowing messages to come through in my waking life, more symbols to connect with. And eventually, as I start to kind of understand what the dream meant, and I've done this many times, um, I can then begin to recombine the symbols. So it's like a separation and then recombination where I put them into an integrated composition mm -hmm. that I plan out in this way. So um, that's a little bit about the process behind that one. And I had also envisioned this painting when I began it as a manifestation. And this is another thing that I do with art where I sort of seed a manifestation into a painting. And I had been invited to go to Egypt, mm -hmm. but at the time, didn't have the money, had no idea how it was going to happen, but I really wanted to go. And I got encouragement from people in my life to just to do it and try and make it happen. So I said yes. And then, you know, did some work to promote a sale on original artwork and a sale on my website and told people what I was trying to do. And the response was just amazing. And within a couple months, I had all the money that I needed. Oh, it was cool. the most amazing thing ever. And it felt like partly manifestation and partly just sort of divine grace. Like this is, I needed to go to Egypt for some reason. So 
then I completed the painting after I got back. Maybe you had to create Sobek, the fierce crocodile god of the Egyptians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sobek. I, I've had many dreams about crocodiles, and this um, one was maybe the most potent. But Cool. Yeah. All right. This yeah, one, I mean, that's the cover. This is on the cover. Yeah, the publishers book. chose this for the cover. I gave them a few options, and this is the one they chose, uh, which is delightful. It's a very, uh, I think it's a lovely painting. I love hummingbirds. Um, it's bright and kind of up in the clear, maybe not so clear, but up in the sky. And it really just is showing the union of the opposites in these mm -hmm. two hummingbirds of different colors being sort of one one being watery, one being fiery, and that union of fire and water. And then, of course, we've got the sun and the moon at the top and the seven traditional planets relating to uh, the seven chakras. And I've got Mercury in the middle because Mercury is that unifying agent. Right. And then from there, they're kind of balanced as opposites, Venus and Mars, the male and the female, and then um, Saturn and Jupiter, the father and the sun or contractive and expansive. And then again, the sun and moon. And um, this painting was actually um, commissioned by a friend of mine as, as part mm -hmm. of a trade. And so it was her that gave me the idea to paint the hummingbirds in this sort of unified composition. But then anytime I do a commission, I need to have some sort of connection to it. And so I wove in all these alchemical aspects of the philosopher's stone, which is the symbol that you see behind the hummingbirds, uh, the outer circle with the triangle square, and then an inner circle contained within the square. And that has a lot of meaning, but it generally signifies the philosopher's stone or the quintessence that unifies all of the elements. Um, and we can look at it as the outer circle of all of consciousness, the all, the all encompassing circle of the one. And then the three principles in the triangle, uh, which would be in different contexts, the body, mind, and the soul, or the corpus, the spirit, and the soul, uh, these different trinities that we work with. Um, and then the square for the four elements within that. And then the inner circle of union, where those opposites meet. And where the two hummingbirds are kind of coming together in this kiss and also drawing nectar from this daisy. And so the title has kind of a pun with um, quintessence of the day's dream. So like the quintessence of a daydream, but then the daisy as well as sort of symbolizing this uh, solar consciousness. Uh, union of the unconscious and conscious within that. Yeah, it's wonderful. <clears throat> My favorite thing is early in the morning, I'm sitting in the back and the hummingbird comes and floats around me. Most magical thing. Yeah, yeah. We have feeders, so they're just amazing. Yeah, I feed them here, here on the ranch where I live, and I, I love cool. to watch them. Yeah. Now we got, for those who will be listening in audio, we've got a frog. Well, it's a toad, actually. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see the warts, Miguel? <laughs> <laughs> Silly me. Yeah, this one is called Bufo in Utero. And so during that time when I was really exploring surrealist techniques and kind of really going into that realm where everything, the subjective and objective are very much blending together, I had the odd experience of 
feeling like I had a toad in my womb. And that's going to sound crazy, but because I allow these things to occur without identifying with them too much, but sort of just allowing them to affect my imagination. And um, what does that mean if I have a toad in my womb? You know, even though I know that's not actually happening, um, that's what inspired the painting was like, all right, so there's a toad in the womb and like something is growing. And the toad in alchemy, especially the black toad, often symbolizes the prima materia that needs to be sort of um, burst open. And so there's some really cool poetry about the black toad. Um, And that was, yeah, the inspiration for the painting. And here there is a sort of uh, nature spirit in the background that's like wrapping its arms around these uh, jewels, uh, which is red garnet. And so to me, that was a sort of aspect of the unconscious that is maybe protective, but in a unhelpful way of the philosopher's stone, you know, like hoarding it and wanting to keep it for itself instead of allowing it to be discovered. So for me, the encounter with the toad was a way of opening up that prima materia and discovering something secret and hidden within the self. Very nice. Toad the wet sprocket. I I have to bring some sort of pop culture reference to things. In this number four. Yeah, this one is called the Elixir of Salt. And that's a reference to the writings of Paracelsus and the Elixir of Salt being also the Elixir of Immortality. So a lot of alchemists were concerned with the search for immortality and the Philosopher's Stone was said to imbue immortality as one of its many powers. So I was playing off of that idea. And also I just traveled to, I had the opportunity to go to Iceland Mm-hmm. and explore some of the beautiful churches there and the amazing landscape and really wonderful trip. And then I also had the opportunity to go to Australia. And at the time I was living in the Northwest. And so this painting combines imagery from all of those three places. And again, this was both a way of exploring that and allowing the unconscious to express itself from all of this rich imagery that I had absorbed in those travels and at home, allowing that to merge together. And also as a form of integration, like what did I learn from these journeys? And so in the background, there's this big salt lake. And that was something that I saw when I was in Australia, really amazing salt lake. Uh, And then in the foreground with the green mossy, that's Olympia. And actually this is um, derived from a photo that I took and then mirrored um, of a tree with some mushrooms growing on it and the imagery Mm -hmm. that that evoked in my imagination and then also the inner um yeah part of a church and a reference to the pipes in the organs of the church so all of that coming together in this very surreal way beautiful thank you okay then we go to number five and tell us about seahorse yeah this one's called hippocampus in the lunar sea and this was definitely a surrealist painting where i just allowed myself to paint automatically from the get-go and the way that i'll often begin that process is simply applying the imprimatura to the panel or the canvas which is just a base coat of paint often like an earth tone 
and um, applying it really thickly, but then rubbing it away vigorously without any sort of conscious design with the rag. And what that does is it creates all these like modeled patterns, very suggestive. You know, if I then gaze into it like a scrying mirror or something, I can then see what wants to be painted, what wants to come forth. So this is a way of automatic painting that I've worked with. And from there, then I just begin to layer more and more color on based on what I perceive within that chaos or prima materia of that um, base coat of paint. And yeah, what first emerged here was the um, very distinct shape of the seahorse, um, the head of the seahorse and the side view of the body like that. And also this strange shape upon the above the crown, you know, so it all just developed from there. And based on what I was seeing and what my imagination allowed me to continue seeing, it just developed further and further into the form that you see. So hence the name hippocampus and the lunar sea hippocampus referencing seahorse, but then the lunar sea representing that unconscious unknown inner aspect or the inner feminine depths. Wonderful. I think, yeah, I think you said five. So that's it. Thank you. <clears throat> Wonderful stuff. And uh, for the audience, uh, where, what, tell people where they can find out more about your art because you've got a lot more on your website. And of course, I'll have it on the show notes. Yeah, there's a lot more on the website. And that's just my name, Marlena7Bremner.com. You'll find links to the books there full gallery of all my art also prints of almost all of my paintings are available and um, information about upcoming events and shows so all of that's there and I'm also on Patreon if you want to subscribe to my blog for just a dollar a month or more if you want the different rewards that I offer um, and that's patreon.com forward slash seven art spelled out seven art and I'm on Instagram um, at M seven artist M the number seven artist. And that's, I post new art there, but also my explorations in nature and events and interviews and all of that goes to Instagram and then also to Facebook. So lots of places to find me and interact. And I hope you do. Awesome. Awesome. And again, yeah, they're already in the show notes. The audio version will come out probably tomorrow. I'll have it in the show notes. Definitely support her work. Support Aeon Byte. Do appreciate the super chats and the great comments. But uh, I actually have to take my eight-year-old daughter wants to go to the park. So I'm going to that park again with <laughs> Denzel Washington, and she's going to have to sit with me. She can play. I'm going to sit by that slide until... I get revelation. <laughs> I get arrested. I might be calling you for a bail money. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm following my dream. I'm going to be like that Carrington lady. I'm going to go into the underworld. Um, but no, it's been great. Well, first of all, Vance, thanks for keeping us company. You bet. No, oh, this is great. Love the art, Marlene. It was great. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and thank you, Miguel. Thank you, Vance, and thank you to everyone who commented and submitted questions really appreciate that and there won't be a is this a trilogy or we only need two books i think these are just two together but there will be other books yay sure. 
All right. We look forward to it. Well, awesome. Well, thank you as always, Seven. Really enjoyed having you on. Anytime you want to come back and talk alchemy, you know, we're open. This laboratory is too laboratory. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, everyone, thanks for uh, coming to the show. Really appreciate your support. You guys are amazing. You are indeed the Philosopher's Stone. It's within you. And so is the gifts of the unconscious. But in the meantime, yeah, have a rest, a good rest of your Mercury day. Avoid Wotan if you see him because it's his day too. And as I mm-hmm. always say, write your own gospel, live your own myth. Take care, everybody, and thank you. Thank you, Miguel. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.